Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god, I can't believe it! I just checked my SoundCloud page, and the best motorcycle podcast on the West Coast is following the worst one! Motorcycles and Misfits is following me! Oh my god! I hope I don't melt their brains. I can't even think right now. Oh my god. The best podcast in California is listening to the best podcast in the eastern San Gabriel Valley, east of the Pasadena Glen, and west of the Sawpit Canyon Debris Basin, to be specific. Oh my god, I'm going to pass out. Good night. As far as I'm concerned, I need to quit now while I'm ahead. It's three episodes in and I've already jumped the shark. This is the producer for creative writing. There's no host today. Kick the rev. Well, I've done it. I finally got to episode four. I had to buy some more bandwidth, so I'm sorry if there's been a gap between the last episode and this one, but I'll do my best. This will do a wheelie. Oh, it'll wheelie, baby. Especially since there's no host this week. That's right. It's just going to be me. And after all, I am the one that did the the IMS, and I did the Super Prestigio ride, so I'm going to go ahead and blab about all that great stuff coming up on this episode of Creative Writing. All right. Well, let's kick things off straight away with the sob story of the week. So my sob story this week is probably going to be about budgets. I have a show budget, and it overlaps the bike budget. Now that my bike needs to be fixed, uh uh-oh. So I've been spending money going to different things and paying for bandwidth and stuff, and I'm probably going to have to start a little side hustle where I start selling stuff. I'm going to start with my kid, whichever one's the worst. Then I'll move on to the dog. So, anyway, yeah, I'll start the sob story now. Let's kick in some cheesy piano music. All right, let's do this. So, I guess my sob story starts this way. Do I uh, follow my pursuit as the producer of the best podcast in a very localized geographical area of Los Angeles County? Or do I give up? Do I fix my bikes? Do I go back to just uh, being like a tinkerer and enthusiast and automotive professional that I have been? I mean, on one hand, I could go back to dancing nights at Tito's Topless Tampanade and Tapas Tavern and Titty Bar, which is the only co-ed Mexican tapas bar in town. I mean, tips weren't good but they support my body type there, so it's an option. Or do I try to uh, monetize this thing? No, I don't want to do that. This isn't about the money, baby. This is about... This is about the people. The great people. All six of you that listen to this show. (laughs) Three of them being me. (laughs) So anyway, yeah. 
I need to fix my bike after my super prestigio ride over to Vegas from LA. And I need to uh, take care of some hosting plans. And and I hired a producer, so uh, I'll have him say hi. Say hi. Hi. Say your name. My name is Boomer Fireball. That's right. I hired somebody named Boomer Fireball, and this thing isn't even seven episodes in yet. What was I thinking? I wasn't thinking. Hey, Boomer. Boomer, you're breaking the computer, man. We record onto this thing, you know. I do all my all my show notes and upload via this thing, so please don't wreck it, bro. All right. Hey, Boomer, can you tell the folks out there in podcast land good night? Good night. Thanks, bro. All right. Let me go clobber Boomer over the head with a two-by-four so that he goes to sleep. One second. I'll be right back. Welcome back to Creative Writing, episode four. Let's get back to business. Let's kick off a little news. All right, the first thing I'd like to talk about is a unique little tool I found online the other day by Kaufman, <clears throat> Kaufman Mercantile. See what it did there, Kaufman? I will uh, put a link in the show notes. But what they have is a... a Tool, little tiny toolkit called the EDC, which stands for Everyday Carry. And basically, it's a small toolkit that fits on a key ring no bigger than a few car keys strung together. The basic toolkit that I am looking at ha- is 59 bucks. It's got a pry bar, a screwdriver, one Phillips, another screwdriver that's flathead, tweezers, and a waterproof lighter that, if you empty out the contents, can double as a pill container or some sort of little container. Like a weed but container. But as a lighter, it has three to five minutes of burn time at 15 seconds each. And it'll stay lit till you blow it out, and it stands up on its own. So Just like a pretty joint. Pretty handy if you need to use it as a light source while you're using the tweezers or uh, unscrewing something. Although it's not a full capable toolkit it is handy for having on your person if you just have like a small emergency pop up hey you got it right on your key ring or if you if you're repairing a gadget or something like that and you don't really need to be carrying around like a leatherman or a full toolkit with you you got this little thing handy so they also make another one let's keep uh, keep it two wheel oriented this one's for uh bikes bicycling and it has a 4 millimeter and a 5 millimeter allen hex key wrench and it's got two pry bars and of course the uh, titanium key ring that it attaches to and that's handy having two pry bars because you can use that to pop off your tire and change a tube real fast and a lot of the bike axles out there are four or five millimeter uh bolts holding retaining those axles so yeah this is something handy to have on your person If only they made like a pie fork and knife set, that'd be awesome because I love eating pie while I change tires. And the other thing that would be handy would be a handcuff key and a credit card sized saw, like a hacksaw. 
you sh- if you check out Kaufman Mercantile, you'll see they have a full range of tools that are credit card size. They're compact. They're all made in the USA from what I've read. So go check them out. I'll put the uh, link in the show notes. Next gadget I want to address is uh, anti-gravity batteries. They make lithium-ion batteries. And before you snap up one of these babies and throw it in your bike, go check out episode 104 of the Cleveland Moto Podcast. They address the lithium battery uh, uh, situation thoroughly, and they describe to you the perils and you know the pros and cons of putting a lithium battery in your bike. And I'd have to say that those guys know what they're talking about, and that's one hell of an informative episode. However, I'm not here to talk about Andy Gravity's batteries. I'm, I'm here, here to, to talk, talk about their micro start. And what their micro start is, is a personal power source and a jump start module. And they are, they're small. How small? Cell phone size small. And their base, what I consider their base model, their XP1, is six inches by right around three inches by one inch. So, I mean, we're talking just just around the size of a, a big wiener one of your bigger cell phones and for 159 bucks this thing has a editing problem let me run down the specs for this thing um it's basically got um a 19 volt port for laptops 12 volt standard output 5 volt uh 2 amp usb port high power led flashlight with the strobe pattern uh, lighted battery capacity, built-in overcharge and over-discharge, reverse polarity and short-circuit protections, automatic power off when not in use, comes with the case, comes uh, with your micro-start unit, has jump starter clamps that are uh, like detachable alligator clips. It has eight tips. It says assorted laptop charging tips for all the different brands of laptops. It's got a 4-to-1 USB cable. And four different detachable tips to fit most USB devices like cell phones, iPads, Kindles, you know, your GPS, whatever you whatever you got. And it's got a home charger for wall charging and a mobile charger for plugging into a cigarette lighter. So if you're not using it while camping, um, you know, you might charge it during the daytime or I'm sorry, you might be charging your stuff at night or while you're resting, and then while you're driving, you plug this thing in to your accessory device and charge it up. So yeah, this thing's great, man. It sounds awesome. They range in price from 109 bucks to 209 bucks. So, you know, your cheaper one, you're going to get a few less of those functions, and then the big granddaddy one, you're going to get uh, everything. I believe it comes with um, just more amps. I think it comes with all the same stuff that the uh x1 comes with but you just get uh, a little bit more power so yeah these things are like a must-have throw them in your bag throw them uh you know in your saddlebag in your backpack whatever throw them in your camping gear and if you're riding if you're blogging if you're taking photos whatever you're doing this thing sounds like it's just an awesome little piece of kit to have so go check them out at antigravitybatteries.com or the microstart has its own website since it's so popular at themicrostart.com. Go check them out. Add them to your uh, gear. All right, let's move on. 
First thing I want to talk about is CITS. And dancing. Black boxes and telemetry was brought up on an episode of Front End Chatter. And it made me think about things that we had talked about recently at my work regarding emerging vehicle technologies. Dance, mother! CITS is Cooperative Intelligent Transportation Systems, and it's really nothing new. It's really a revolution that's been happening in the way vehicles communicate with their surroundings and their occupants and road service providers. Dance, motherfucker, dance! A lot of companies use it right now for smart structures or tolling purposes. And if you think about it, you probably use it too. If you use Waze or Google Maps or even your GPS, that's that's a certain form of SITS. Not to nerd out on it too much, but it's really just a new direction that vehicle safety is traveling that's integrating itself with all these apps and technologies that cars are becoming inundated with in the first place. Dance! Imagine that you're approaching an intersection and it's a blind intersection. Maybe there's a big building on the corner and... You can't see an oncoming vehicle, but that vehicle can tell your vehicle, hey, I'm here and I'm coming down the street and you're approaching me and your vehicle can send you a warning. At this point, CITS is basically vehicle to vehicle communication and vehicle to infrastructure communication for safety purposes Dance, mother. and alert purposes. Yeah. In the future, they may be able to... No, let's not talk about the future. It's way too early to start talking about the future. Let's talk about current current CITS. Current dance. Now, aside from your GPS and aside from Waze, interaction and road hazard detection is capable by either occupant input or sensory input. And if you've ever driven through California, I'm sure you've seen there's cameras all over the freeways. And in most countries, there's cameras all over. There's antennas, there's maps. They're, they're taking all sorts of readings and they're, the road operators are gathering all sorts of traffic data. And what they're doing is they can use that to manage road conditions and traffic flow. One of the purposes of SITS is safety. If you can broadcast through infrastructure to cars that there is a hazard up ahead or that a hazardous condition has arisen, let's say traffic, um, flooding, uh, ice on the road, maybe an accident, accident. or you just want to send out a general alert. Maybe it's, maybe you could even use it for Amber alerts. Safety dance. It's not only the road telling you what's coming up ahead, it's cars telling each other. Right now, there's technology that exists where if a car comes into your lane, your your car can alert you to that. Hey, there's encroachment. You know, there's backup cameras that will alert you. Cars for a long time have had backup sensors that will tell you when you're getting close to things. I mean, this, this is old technology. But it's entering the next stage now where... Most cars have some sort of wireless capability as it is, either to connect to your phone or to connect to GPS navigation or to connect to each other. If you're entering an intersection and a car can tell you that it's there, it can tell your car rather that it's there, your car can tell you. you. And a DOT study has determined that they can reduce 
82% of unimpaired crashes. It didn't say they could be avoided, but it said that they could be addressed by vehicle-to-vehicle communications. Dance, motherfucker, dance! Honda, BMW, and Yamaha are three OEs that have joined the car-to-car communication consortium, which is basically founded by Ford, Daimler, and VW, to enhance V2V communication and V2I communication systems. They want to enhance safety in cars, and in 2012, Ann Arbor, Michigan put V2V systems in 3,000 vehicles and did like the world's largest active road test of V2V communications testing. And in 2014, they announced plans to go ahead and continue with development of the software, development of the infrastructure, and development of these systems and implementation. The second thing that CITS aims to improve upon is productivity, efficiency, and environment. If you have vehicle-to-vehicle or vehicle-to-infrastructure data coming in at all times, this changes logistics. It changes the way that we employ vehicles in the field. It will make traffic lighter, hopefully. It'll reduce congestion, and it'll thereby increase productivity and reduce the amount of time that cars are using the roadways, which is which impacts the environment that they're in. Here's something completely empirical that I've done. I've gone downtown and gone up onto the rooftop of a hotel, and I looked down at the surrounding buildings, and I can tell you that everything on ground level had this like dark tint to it. And it's mostly because, it could be a little bit because of road debris and dust, dirt. But I'm telling you what, I think a lot of it is emissions and carbon output and all that stuff. So you make your traffic flows more efficient throughout the landscape. And you're going to reduce the effect that that has on your surroundings as far as emissions output. That was at an urban level, but if you think of a rural level, you have all of the wildlife and vegetation and the natural landscapes getting hit by all those emissions. So what you want to do is you want to minimize the impact your vehicles have on that, especially if you're dealing with long-haul transports, a lot of diesels running through these, uh, like, across country, just hitting everything. So the better you can get at efficiently managing that, the better your landscape will actually be. So the three things that CITS aims to improve upon is safety, productivity, and then user and operator services. I use ways to get around, and I love the fact that other vehicles can tell me about upcoming events, whether it be a hazard, whether it be traffic, And I love that Waze can then reroute me based upon the severity of that. That's a key example of CITS working. But did you know it works with airplanes and ships, parking garages and tollways? There are certain aspects of CITS like license plate recognition that allows you to pass through a tolled parkway without having to stop and get out and pay and whatnot. There's, There's several advantages to being able to communicate with your surrounding infrastructure. And it's not only convenience. They were talking about portable infrastructure that you can place around construction zones. And what that'll do is it'll alert you to lane closures and possible, you know, open trenches. You don't, you know, there's a lot of signage that goes on with that stuff, but now it'll be able to tell your car. 
it gives feedback to these road operators as well because just like you're getting traffic information, so are they. So what they can do is try to manage and reroute traffic in other areas to keep it light, to keep it at least moderate in in all areas so that you don't get heavy backups. And they can issue SIG alerts. And all this crap will just come straight to your car so you won't have to be always getting on your phone or checking your GPS and all that. I don't want to get too nerdy and go into like every single technical aspect of all this crap and when when it's coming because it's already here and they're trying to put it into motorcycles by 2020. At least the European Association of Motorcycle Manufacturers is adopting it by 2020. And... uh, yeah, there's there's a bunch of good articles on it and and all the technical st- like there's a lot of technical stuff behind it. I'm not going to get into all that, so I'm just pretty much about to wrap it up. I'm not I I recorded a little like in the future here's how it could work, but I will just say that when cars do start driving themselves, this stuff will be like a ma- you know, obviously a mandatory necessity uh for them to figure out what's going on so yeah anyway it's just it's an interesting thing and it's kind of crazy that motorcycle manufacturers are jumping on board so that they can be seen by all this stuff and um sort of mitigate the problems that can arise when cars start driving themselves and we're still little weenies flying around in between you know all these people and they're basically they're moving seats all right let's move on all right i all right, I don't know why I always love doing all this snooze fest stuff in my best PBS uh, broadcaster voice at late at night when I'm recording and I start talking about things like this. Anyway, yeah, um, what I want to do now is give you a skit based on my experience when I was registering my motorcycle a couple months ago. And if you ever have the, the displeasure of calling the DMV and trying to do things automatically online. You know, the automated system is just a charm. So here's just about how it went. Thank you for calling the California DMV vehicle registration line. If you have your paperwork, please press 1. We didn't recognize the number you pressed. If you have your paperwork, please press 1. Thank you. For English, press 1. For Spanish, press 2. For Tagalog... Thank you. Please enter your vehicle ID number. You took too long. Thank you. Bye. What the hell? Oh, hell no. Thank you for calling the California Vehicle Registration Line. For English, press 1. Thank you. Please enter your vehicle identification number. We didn't recognize that number. Please re-enter your vehicle identification number and your, your registration ID number. You're taking too long. We didn't recognize... You're taking too long. We didn't recognize your input. Goodbye. What the hell? Come on, man.
Thank you for calling the California Department of Motor Vehicles Registration Line. For English press... Gracias. Oh, no. Por entra no, no, no. número de identificación back, back. vehicular. Back. En su, su nombre... Oh, back. No, gracias. Oh, shit. Back, back. No, recordamos su... Back, back. No. Back, back. No es posible. Oh, main menu. No. Come on. Por favor, oh. no presionar el botón. Come on, man. No. Back. Adios, pendejo. No! So there you have it in about a nutshell. You know, California DMV making every taxpayer dollar count. And I think it took me about four times getting a different menu or sub-menu every freaking time, even though I dialed the same number. I just kept getting asked for different stuff. It was awesome. So worth every penny. We're sorry. The number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Let's move on to the IMS show. <laughs> I went to IMS. I snapped some pics. I put it up on creativewriting.com, creative-writing.com for anybody that's looking for my crummy weblog. Do people still call them weblogs? My uh, computer internet weblog of things that I do and like um, is on, lo- on the internet, available via your favorite protocol. <laughs> Replace with boner. Right. So IMS was much better than I gave it credit for. Um, and if you listen to one of the past episodes, I don't know, three, maybe? Uh, the host was talking about going, or the host was talking about sending me, and... Uh, I kind of bagged on how crummy it was. And to be honest, this year it's kind of it made like a sort of a triumphant return. And in the past, uh, the what okay, the OEs had dwindled, but the vendors since there was more floor space, the vendors were growing and I mean, it was just like every little anybody that had like a shitty wolf howling at the moon on with the Harley in the background or like a bandana or you know, mime pa um gear stores and like Mustang scooter company and California scooter company, all these like little boutique sort of vendors were showing up and filling in the gaps. And it was, I mean, it was awesome in one sense. And it was, you know, kind of a reflection of how poorly the economy was doing in another sense. But this year I have to say they, they didn't knock it out of the park, but it was pretty sweet. And I'm going to, I got my little list here of the vendors that were here. And, uh, the first couple of years I went, I mean, you had like Bimota was there showing off the Tessie and they had, you know, Aprilia. I mean, everybody was there. Moto Guzzi, Royal Enfield, Ural, Hyosung was kind of trying to make their debut. There was a bunch of e-scooters coming online and a bunch of e-bikes coming. And those guys just literally fucking dropped off the face of the earth as soon as the financial door slammed in their faces. And needless to say, Buell was there. The first few years I started going and uh, EBR never made it there, but, you know, things were kind of already going down to the tanks at that point. And I think in t- like 2010, Suzuki didn't even import bikes to the U.S. So, yeah, it was it was sad there for a little while. And I'm glad to say that, like, you know, in the last five years, it's changed a little bit, but it has made this pretty stunning comeback this year. And Going on the media day, you don't get to see all the stunt shows and all the cool entertainment that they have. And I went to the Super Prestigio the next day, so I didn't get to see any of it. But what was cool was uh, one of the highlights was the Roland Sands bikes and Victory and Indian and Polaris in general has just like shot through the roof this year. And 
I think we mentioned like back in episode one that you know they they ran at the uh, the TTX GP and then they you know just totally killed it at the um, Pikes Peak. And I did go over and lick the forks on that Pikes Peak Project 156 bike. It was there. And Roland Sands had got a bunch of crusher motors from Scout. And they had this new Scout 60 that they they brought out that they introduced. And they took like five or six of the crusher motors that they just used for R&D and said, hey, instead of like bending these things, let's give them to Roland Sands and we can kind of make like a fleet for the Hooligan Harley races. Or the hool- I'm just going to say the hooligan class, because a lot of places that you look at, they'll call it hooligan Harley. But now that Victory and Indian are doing so well, I think they're going to start seeing these guys pick up and throw their hats in the ring here to, uh, you know, provide some competition in this hooligan class. So, yeah, it was really sweet. He was there. They said, here he is. He showed the bikes. There were so many people crowding around him. I couldn't get a fucking pick. I got a picture of like Robert Pandia and Roland Sands standing together. And that's about it. I mean, everybody else was just nuts to butts standing in line to get a picture of these things and crowding around. So you couldn't, I just couldn't get one. I listened to their spiel though. And it was pretty cool hearing about Indian. And, and last year they had the scout released and there was a couple cool custom scouts there. Obviously one that Roland Sands did that looked like something from a Jules Verne novel. So it was kind of cool. I'm not even like a really big cruiser fan, but it was really cool seeing him take these cruisers and like hack a few things off. And all of a sudden they're like street tracker or flat trackers. So that was really cool. And they said he's going to pack them up and head over to the, you know, Vegas right after this, yada, yada. Well, they weren't shitting me. Like 10 minutes later, they were gone because I went back to get pictures as we like looped around. And the media day, it's like herding cats, but they really want you to kind of stick, you know, with the group and they usher everybody. So it's not like you can just hang around and do whatever you want. But that literally we were coming back 10 minutes later they were, they were gone like no it was like crickets and like a tumbleweed actually blew through the uh, display area and i was like holy shit and i didn't see him until the next night on the track at the super prestigio so that was pretty cool and this year of course we already mentioned the news uh last episode for triumph and royal enfield and I thought it was pretty cool. The guy verified that Royal Enfield is only going to be basically like a warranty and distribution center. And right now there's really no plans for a, you know, a dealership sort of hub or any sort of manufacturing or anything like that. They're just going to take care of all the distributorship through that one uh, center. And I thought it was pretty interesting. The guy was stating that, you know, since... Britain, the Enfield company moved over to India, you know, way back in World War One or whatever the hell it was, um, that basically India has taken Royal Enfield as their Harley Davidson in a way. And that's like part of their national identity, sort of like Harley represents all that's supposed to be American. So that's part of the reason they justified not trying to open like a dealership network here is because they still identify with uh, Indian culture and being Indian made. So they don't, you know, they don't, it doesn't bother them that a lot of people kind of may look at that as, as a downside. So I thought that was kind of interesting and actually kind of cool. I have to say, uh, a lot of the OEs didn't really stick out in my, you know, there was, there was some cool stuff, you know, the Ducati 62, actually that little scrambler, 
I was excited. We bagged on, yeah, I always bag on scramblers. I think everybody here kind of shares my opinion that a true scrambler back in the day was something between like 125 cc's to, I mean, 500 was pushing it back then. And, and to try and maintain that shit on dirt and go do a like hare and hound or like a steeplechase on like an 800 or 900 cc bike is, I mean, ridiculous so it's pretty cool that scram the ducati scrambler now has a little brother in the uh the 400 pound ish 400 cc ish uh scrambler 62 you could probably actually do a couple mods to that thing and get out there and whip around on a little track and have fun or just you know take it trail riding with some some good knobbies on it so i was actually excited about that I also creamed my jeans slightly and I kind of hid my camera down over my crotch so nobody would see. But the Yamaha XSR 900 is like beautiful and they do have a pretty cool colorway on that. But the speed block one is the one. I mean, if I had the money, I would have or the uh, a clear getaway with no cops. I would have, uh, you know, before I before I say that, let me just say uh, uh Police shootings are way too rampant here in Los Angeles, so stealing a bike from the IMS isn't worth it. But if I had the means, I would have shown up back at home on that thing, and my wife probably would have been crying for the rest of the night. But either that or hugging me because it's that beautiful that even people that don't ride could probably appreciate the styling of this thing. And of course, sure to not miss out on the hipster boat the uh, bmw announced they're gonna have a scrambler and of course their fucking r9t is already like a fifteen thousand dollar bike so i mean i don't know and it's a 1200 so the scrambler isn't gonna depart from that and they've been they worked with roland sands to do their uh concept 101 and i know he was one of the very first ones to get a r9t uh to modify back when they first released it a couple years ago at the show and so yep they've hit all the check marks on the hipster uh list here with the brown textured seat and the high side pipes and it kind of looks like the pipes that were accessory pipes already so it's not like they did a whole bunch of stuff to that thing the subframe was already removable, so you could make it kind of like a cafe racer, and it had like different configurations on it. So that thing was super highly modifiable as it was. So I mean, I guess the Scrambler edition was basically in the works. So yeah, not to be outdone. It not expected to be here until I think like late 2016, like Q3 or something like that. But yeah, they really you know, jumping on this this bandwagon that Ducati has started and people kind of forget that Triumphs had a scrambler forever. And the Triumphs actually I think you can still get uh the old school scrambler kit with like the nine nine hundred CC motor, but you can also get it for the newer motors that they redid. Um I think it's called an inspiration kit and I'm pretty sure you can get it for the new uh twelve hundred. And they still do have like a 900 twin or something like that. So anyway, yeah. So that was, you know, to be expected. And then you're thinking of poor saps like Kawasaki who have like the W 800 or whatever it is that would just, it's such a beautiful bike and it, it would make a sweet scrambler, but Kawasaki is either always way ahead or way behind the times. And, uh, kind of reminds me of how Suzuki has been, <laughs> 
Suzuki has like bold new graphics every year. I was just working on the uh, Bandit the other day and made me think of that bike looks like it's from the 1990s and they haven't, they just haven't changed it. And I'm wondering who that 1200 standard market, you know, with all these really sexy looking 1200 standards out, who is in the market for that one that just has like big plastic generic looking, not even transformer looking uh, plastics on it. You know, I don't know. It's just, it's a weird bike and it looks like the styling's way outdated. And most of the stuff from Suzuki just needs to be rebooted. One thing that Suzuki has done that was probably pretty freaking smart on their part was bring back the SV650, and it looks pretty tits. It is pretty cool. It's got a bunch of uh, technical upgrades. I believe they said there's like 60 new engine parts, so it's not just, you know, like a re-release of their old old bike. They actually did some new stuff to it. I thought there was something kind of cool. You know, they got optional ABS. And they got this, I've never heard of it before, but I've never really paid that much attention, but they got a resin and tin process on the pistons. Helps reduce friction because I guess it, you know, makes the surface, they tin one surface and put like a slip resin on the other and it just makes it that much more, uh, you know, reduces the coefficient of friction that much more. So yeah, it's still got the like twin lights in the back or whatever, but it doesn't have those two like light bars that it used to. It's got LED like twin twin lamps. And as we know, the uh, SV650 is everybody's favorite track bike. So the ER6N or whatever and the Gladius, bad concept bikes, or well, you know, bad bikes for Suzuki in the past. And this, one of their nakeds that seems to be doing well. Maybe they should bring back the B-King. So, just a couple more bikes before I want to wrap this up. Because there's something really cool I want to talk about that happened the next day. So, of course, I think we should talk about the Africa Twin. And uh, that's another bike that I was standing over there right in the front. And then, like, 20 minutes, 10 minutes before they actually started their presentation, like, everyone and their mom started crowding in. And there was people that weren't even there... <laughs> Uh, like 15 minutes before, just all of a sudden showed up and uh, just started, you know, clicking on their cell phones or like whatever they had. There was like a guy there with the chisel, you know, and a piece of stone carving out his old cave drawing of this thing. Like everybody wanted to see the Africa Twin. And the poor VFR 1200X, like that thing is, uh, you know, it's like a 1237 cc v4 it's got i think it comes with the dct it's like everything that africa twin isn't and the africa twin is just like i think it's more of the because of the way it looked because there was a gray one there and nobody wanted to stand next to that one and uh, i went ahead and took a picture of myself fondling the you know the engine guard but i don't know man i was thinking about the africa twin it's a 998 parallel and uh there's other bikes out there that like the Super Tenere, which is only like 40 pounds heavier, but I think it's an 1100. So, I mean, and it's got like electronic suspension and all this stuff. And the DCT, from what I've read, I never have ridden one of uh, the DCT trannies, but from what I've read, they kind of sanitize the feel of everything and they kind of make it um, 
you know, just a not as fun or I don't know what it is about them. The input, they shift faster, sure, and they're probably more economically um, fuel, ba- you know, they shift better and they are probably more fuel efficient and economical in the way they shift, depending on how you have it set up. But I don't know. So the Africa twin was like everyone creaming their jeans to get over there and check it out. And I was just like, eh, you know, adventure was their, basically their focus. Cause they were releasing the twin and the VFR for, uh, the States. And then they also upgraded their NC 700 and the CB 500 X. So both of those got some upgrades, and I actually kind of dig those. Those basically look like little, you know, smaller versions of a like the Multistrada. So I, I don't know. I kind of dig the seven and and five hundred. If you're going to be doing touring, um, those might not get sunk down in mud like a twelve hundred. And uh, the Africa Twin definitely, you know, I don't know. It was just overkill in my eyes for how much attention people were giving to it, especially considering that uh, Ducati released the Multistrada Enduro, and that thing looks pretty bitchin'. I mean, they took their Multistrada and just made it look even more off-road capable, and they had the uh, XDFL, and that was, you know, I think that won, like, Best in Show or somewhere I was reading. I forget what the hell I was reading, but yeah, I don't know if it was Eichma or where it was, but, uh, you know, that thing just looks like a, a stripped down power cruiser, which it is, you know, they, they took all the luxury stuff from the DFL and tore it off and then called you a bastard or a gentleman for riding it. So I wasn't hooked on their whole, uh, marketing behind it. And the DFL has been one of those things that I kind of love, hate, you know, you see it in person and you're like, wow, it looks fast. It looks powerful, but it just doesn't quite, I don't know. It's a very niche market, I would say. So, you know, there was those those two, you know, besides the Scrambler 62 were the big things coming out of Ducati. KTM had a, has another, a 1290 GT, and uh, that thing looked fucking awesome. And I remember KTM, the first time I saw KTM, my old boss had ridden trials since like the 70s. And... He had ridden motocross back in the Carlsbad days when Carlsbad was, you know, like the GP track in the United States and the superbiker days we're talking about. And KTM had always been a dirt bike company and he had a few KTMs and a few bull tacos and stuff. And I don't know, when they made the switch to street, I was pretty excited. And now, I mean, they're just, they have such a good uh, model base that I, I can't believe, you know, how well they've done. I'm, I mean, they dropped the RCA, but they introduced the Duke 690. And before I get to the Duke, this, this 1290 GT looks bitching. I mean, it's basically their like naked adventure bike with bags on it. And it looks pretty primo. I mean, you got the Viffer 1200 and now the 1290 GT. And, uh, the S1000X um, from BMW. And so, I mean, all these like, you know, leader, leader adventure bikes coming out that are, look like they're pretty fun to ride. So the 690 Duke and Duke Special, Duke R, was, you know, it's like a, 
690cc thumper. So this thing's probably got like a lot of grunt from coming up from the bottom end and it it looked it's another one of those bikes. They remind me of how Ducatis used to look to me when they you know before they started covering up the frames like the Panigales and everything. Like the Ducati naked just looks so cool to me with the trellis frame and you know all of their uh technology just hanging out there. Just I I really like those and that's what I think KTM their bikes look really aggressive and I wouldn't really say they look sexy, but they do in a way they look powerful. You know what I mean? And even this, the thumpers as they, they just look like they can just like tear some stuff apart, you know, just ride through corners and they look like you could throw knobbies on them and take their dirt by bi- or street bike off and just like tear through the dirt on them. I mean, they just, they look so cool. So, all right, we're at 45 minutes. <sighs> so, Long Beach was great this year. There seems like they're turning around and making a comeback. So I would encourage you to go and do all the fun stuff you can do with your family and uh, participate. I, I met a couple guys from uh, the United Mini Racing League that race out at Chuckwalla, and they race like Groms and like little one twenty fives and two fifties and like little NSRs and all the stuff. So. They that look like fun. There's just a lot of cool people that you can meet out there and then actually go ride with later, you know. So a lot of vintage clubs. I think Venice Vintage was there and and uh so stuff like that. It's really fun to go see them at the show and then hey, you know, you run into them later or go to one of their rides and it's really cool to see that stuff coming back to IMS and not just being, you know, like a sad reflection of how the industry is doing, which I really do want to talk about in a later episode too. So after IMS, uh, I rent home, hung out with my fam because the next day I was going to be riding over to Vegas. And, you know, I don't know why riding in LA doesn't scare me, but riding in Las Vegas freaks me the shit out. And even just driving down, like, on the Strip, it's just because you have, like, so many people, like, literally so many people from (laughs) different parts of the world with different driving styles that nobody knows how to drive. And Vegas is kind of, like, still the Wild West, so people just drive like shit. Like, I have family members over there, and they, they drive, oh, I don't know why I got a speeding ticket i was only doing 111 you know when i hit the california state line coming to visit you but i got a speeding ticket and it's like dude you guys drive like unless you're on the strip and you're in traffic they're doing like 110 on the road now why does that scare me it should be fun right well first of all because you can't split lanes in nevada and i feel safer between cars when people are driving like that even though they're probably more likely to switch lanes but it was it was actually pretty cool Nothing, you know, nothing crazy happened, but I did feel kind of weird at stoplights. Like, I'm going to get crushed, you know, by this fucking Hummer behind me. Because that's another thing. In Vegas, people buy, like, outlandish cars because it's so cheap to live. What else are they going to spend their money on? You know, the people that live there don't gamble, so they buy huge, huge cars. So, Saturday morning, um... Super Prestigio dream glistening in my eye. I had just uh, seen the Roland Sands bikes at IMS, and I actually raced in uh, the hooligan class in June down in Del Mar, 
And that was so fun. I love watching it. And then I checked it out at the Hell on Wheels Hot August Nights. Like, I just love the hooligan class. So I was I was almost more excited to see that than the Super Prestigio. But it was just really cool to be to traveling over there to see something that is getting its start here in the U.S. And I hope it picks up and brings, you know, a little bit more emphasis and focus and exposure to flat track. Because even though I hate NASCAR, I used to race cars and I supported all sorts of racing, even if I didn't like it. And I have to tell you that flat tracking, for some reason, is just like so much more exciting to me to watch than NASCAR, even though they're basically doing the same thing. And then even doing it makes it even that much funner. And the fact that there is like a hooligan class where you can just take your bike in and, you know, I rode my bike down to San Diego, raced it, crashed it, bent the shift lever back and rode it back home. So, I mean, I had like a super fun day and I did it on the bike that I rode down there. So I'll talk about that sometime in the future because right now the what I want to talk about is the ride over to Vegas. So I hop on my crusty little 250 that is basically cobbled. I have built, aside from like the chassis and the running gear, like the actual mechanical stuff, I pretty much built everything on it. So it, it I guess my issues are do I trust my own <laughs> my own work, you know? And uh, part of working on your own bike too. Every time I finish like the brakes on my car or the brakes on my bike or like I finish the clutch, I am always worried for like the first 3 times that I drive or ride that that I do is did I do this right? Like am I going to back out and there's just going to be like a puddle of oil on the ground because I forgot to put the cap, you know, the plug back in or like tighten it or something. So yeah, all this stuff going through my head. So when I'm riding over to Vegas, I've ridden down to San Diego a few times and, you know, of course, riding around LA, I I, I know what my bike can do and I re-geared it for the freeway because otherwise at like 75 miles an hour, it would just like rattle and fall apart and I would just be floating in the air with a bunch of nuts and bolts beneath me. So... Yeah, it doesn't, it's not that, it, it'll it do it. I mean, it's fun to actually cruise, you know, it'll cruise at 70 all day long. And it did, it, I cruised over to Vegas as fast as I could. Getting out of California, even on a Saturday, I mean, it was, it got, it was fine heading east till I got right to the 15 and then it always backs up because everyone's going up the grade there, up the Cajon Pass. And all the semis and shit, like, start to cluster up on the, you know, the outer, the slow lanes, basically, and all people that are exiting, you know what I mean? So the, the, the right side of the road becomes a little bit cluttered. So everyone's trying to get over to the number one lane, you know, trying to get over there as fast as they can. And so it kind of also becomes cluttered because you got all these assholes that want to do like 100 miles an hour to Vegas because there's pretty much nothing in between California and Vegas at that point, but like Baker and, you know, some really small towns where you stop to get gas and take a leak. So going up there, just getting, I I, I was on the 210 heading east and all of a sudden I hit this wind. And yeah, since I've re-geared my bike, all the torque's gone at the top end. So I, you know, I went from like 80 to 50 
And this dude on, on a, um, I think he was on a victory shot by me and was like, gave me the little what's up sign and kept going. And I was like, Hey dude, what's up? I can only do 50. And he's just blowing through the wind at like, you know, 80 and not the wind has never bothered me. I don't have like a fairing on my bike. And so I'm used to riding in the wind, but it was like literally stopping me. It was like riding. It felt like riding through water. That's a good way to describe it. Cause I, I, uh, and I kept having to shift down to fourth and I'd get up to 70 miles an hour, go into fifth and it would just like, brr, just fall on its face. Right. Cause there's zero torque there. And so I was kind of happy when traffic started backing up because then I could shift down. I'd, I split lanes. I actually like got up the hill faster than everyone else. But then once you top the hill, once you get like at the peak of the Cajon Pass and you're going on the other side and it's just like a free for all. It's just like, it's like a, a Disney cartoon from the fifties where like everybody is just like going a hundred miles an hour and their ears are flapping and their eyes are, pe- you know, their eyelids are peeling back cause they're going so fast. And then you have diesels that are like, you know, I don't even know how many tons a loaded diesel is, but they're like, holy shit, I got my Georgia overdrive and I'm just going to get, you know, they're doing like 90 miles an hour downhill. And they're like in this huge convoy and they're passing each other. And it's like, dude, on a 250 that's like not much bigger than a mountain bike, I just, I felt like I was riding a broomstick through traffic. It was pretty insane. So yeah, the wind going up the pass was bad enough because I'm going uphill and there's wind. And I'm not sure, I guess it was like a Santa Ana weekend, but they had, they had signs on the freeway that said gusts. And I think there was gusts up to 70 miles an hour. They had, you know, for high profile vehicles, there was definitely a warning in effect. But even for me, the front of my bike, I had to have a number plate to race at Del Mar. So I just, I made a number plate, stuck my, you know, my headlight sits outside of it. So it was kind of just like a big sail. It's almost like a big cookie platter just sitting on the front of my bike, pushing it backwards. And then it blows up and I had to tuck down just right. I could feel right where my head would get in this little strip slipstream that the front was making. So I could kind of duck down and lay, you know, lay, lay on it and scoop my butt back and just get down in from the wind so much. But when you're going uphill and there's wind, it, it just, you know, those two things together, I was just, it was a little bit freaky being around all those dudes and like they're like super lifted hijacker chevys and fords you know and dualies no less so like their tires are hogging up the whole lane and they're doing like a hundred pulling a trailer full of quads out to the desert and then you got these like semis on the other side of you and i was just like oh shit like kind of just go as fast as you can down (laughs) in your lane maybe get behind a station wagon or a honda odyssey you know that's doing 70 or 80 and let everybody else just pass you at a hundred and whatever else they were doing. So yeah, the whole way to Vegas, there was this wind and I was just riding into this headwind and I don't know. It w- I started in the morning. I think I left LA around 10 and I think I got there at, I don't know, a little after four or something like that. So it took me a little while to get there because at some point I had to slow down to like 50 miles an hour in the wind. And it's sad when you, you know, I drafted a couple semis and then I would hit the front end and they just have such this wind blast coming off. You know, it's like this wave of invisible water and, um, they're, they're so, they suck you in when you get next to them. There's like this vacuum and I was actually like speeding up and then I was like, okay, I'm going to pass them. And then I hit the front 
And just this wave would knock me over in the lane about, you know, I'd literally switch sides of the lane that I was in and I would slow back down to like 50 or 60. And I was like, oh shit, from like 80, you know? So it was just, it was really crazy. And driving a a small bike, you just have to take the good with the bad. And, um, you know, I knew, I knew the limits, but it was still fun and, and it'll do it. So I just, I didn't, think too much about it. I just kept thinking, all right, just keep your head down and do it. And then I finally ended up drafting this like city truck. No, it wasn't a city truck. It was like a county truck. Um, and it was headed down and they, they were just big clunky. I mean, they were, it was a huge truck and it looked slow, but when I looked down at my speedo, they're doing like 75, 80 and I would start to pass them. And then I'd get out in their wind shear and it'd push me back. So I just got behind him and I just stayed behind him. I figured, dude, I'm doing 70, like between 75 and 80 as it is. I, I would only be going that fast if there was no wind. So I don't know why I, I need to feel like <laughs> I need to pass this truck. It's just when you're on a motorcycle and you're getting passed by diesels and like county work vehicles, it's, you know, I guess it can be a little bit ego busting. Not for me because I don't give a shit, but. You know, I was, I thought that was like something funny. Like, I don't think any other person on a motorcycle would like, uh, you know, admit that they got passed by a diesel or a freaking like county road truck. But when you look down at your speedo and they're doing like 90, you know, and you're doing 80, you're like, oh, wow. Well, okay. Well, they're hauling ass. So <laughs> it kind of puts it in perspective. You know, it didn't, didn't feel so uh, humiliating. So yeah, anyway. I uh, I finally made it over there and everything was great and nobody really drove like assholes and the Super Prestigio, I hooked up with my brother and we went and checked it out. Now, my brother doesn't know anything about motorcycles. Um, I try, He said they look fun. I tried to talk him into getting a TW200 because in Nevada, it's kind of like a BLM land, and I think that you can ride anywhere you want. I'm not 100% on that because I don't necessarily keep up with all the uh, land regulations in uh, Nevada. So anyway, he, you know, I don't know. For me, it was awesome. And I, back when you used to be able to watch AMA stuff on TV, you know, back when Speed Vision actually used to play motorcycle racing, um, and I guess when they had a contract, back back in the the milk and honey days, you could see like Larry Pegram and Josh Hayes and all those guys just, it was so cool to see them, you know, these guys that you watch on TV road racing and hucking bikes around at, you know, 150, 200 miles an hour on this dirt track slamming with guys that go hundred miles an hour on, you know, like the miles and stuff. So it was really cool seeing the pros and the all-stars together. Uh, spoiler alert, I waited actually to record this till after the 29th because I knew they were going to air it on TV. So don't don't blame me, but Jared Meese won the Flat Track and the Super Prestigio. So spoiler alert, after the spoiler, if you haven't watched it yet, they aired it yesterday. So anyway, yeah, this is, um, it was really, 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 really cool. And I it was just awesome to see him highlighting people like uh, that the Oliver Brindley kid from England. Actually, his bio says Britain, so he could be from England, Wales, or Scotland, or North 
Northern Ireland, I guess. So I should be careful what I say. But anyway, yeah, it was, you know, just a, a good mix of, of stars and international guys. So what I thought was interesting also was the shape of the track was like a diamond. And, you know, you're usually used to seeing ovals. And I guess the width of the track at the tip of the diamond out was the same width as the Super Prestigio track in Spain. So what they did is if they would have made it an oval, it would have made the corners narrower, like literally less less of a distance to the wall. But it also would have created less strategic lines and a little bit more blocking. So they wanted to eliminate that. And Chris Carr, who's a well-known former flat tracker, designed it and said, you know, I thought that this would like kind of take care of that block and run sort of strategy that people are going to employ and give people more of a chance to do some passing and some different lines. And, you know, the track looks so small, but it actually did happen. And you actually saw when somebody tried to mix it up a little too hard, they would, you know, you start, you start taking yourself out, you know, and you start taking, taking other people out with you and Briar Bauman or something. I think they knocked down Steve Bonzi. I, I wish I would remember this a little better, but yeah, like it was cool. He pulled around and like made sure he was okay and then got off. And this is in a race. He didn't wait till the end of the race to do that. He, he did it. So, I mean, you know, there was, there was definitely some situations where people were banging bars and knocking into each other and the sportsmanship was just out of this world. And it was, it was just really cool. And then the Scout 60 that I mentioned earlier at Long Beach, after the hooligan uh, class ended, they, the winner of the hooligan class, who was who uh, Thor Drake from CC uh, Coffee Co. up in, in uh, Oregon, he won a Scout 60. So yeah, whoever came in first... Uh, won a scout 60. So I, I couldn't believe it. That was pretty cool just to come down here and jump on a bike and, you know, do something for fun and, and walk away with the scout. So it, I, it was just really cool. The exposure was cool and I'm glad they did televise it. I hope that two things, they get a better track for it next year if they do it. Cause that track, that arena was tiny. I think Del Mar was bigger. I mean, it just felt so small in there. And the gravel. They had clay on the bottom, but then they had like pea gravel on the top. So it was interesting mix of like dust and gas fumes in the uh, Orleans arena. So all great time there. You could go down in the pits afterwards and get some photos. And I, I didn't take any, I should have taken a thousand bajillion, but I was there to have fun and enjoy myself. I wasn't there to do anything for the website or anything for the podcast. I That was something for me to go check out and you know, miss my opportunity to cover the very first inaugural Super Prestigio of the Americas. But you know what? I think there might have been one or two other people there doing that. So if you, you know, want a much better opinion than mine on the venue and, and everything, you know, read any other rag um, that covers motorcycling and they were there. So yeah, that the ride home was <laughs> just as interesting as the ride out. No wind, but cold as fuck and i you know i wear all my gear all the time but my gloves were i didn't have winter gloves on i do have thick gloves you know that are i think they're fleece lined and all that great shell it would have been so nice i had to stop i I left vegas and i had to stop at prim which is uh i'm not even sure if that's the state line it's close but I, i don't think it's i think it's like the last stop i had to stop and get coffee 
and not to drink, just to hold on to because my hands were so damn frozen. This is actually where the real story begins of my ride and the whole takeaway from this episode, if there is one. But before I get to there, let me tell you that on the way out, I only stopped twice for gas and my bike gets around, I don't know, 80-ish miles to the gallon and it's only got like a 1.9 gallon tank. So I made it there on, you know, 3.8 gallons of gas and I still had a little bit left, a little, little to spare. So I made it back, but I stopped like a hundred times on the way back. I don't know why. I don't know why I, I trusted it to make it out there in the headwind, you know, but do, I was doing a much lower speed, even though I was trying to like give it way more gas um, to make it through the wind. So on the way back, I'm passing and getting passed by all these uh, race trucks leaving the arena and heading back to, to SoCal. And that was a really cool experience. I got to give the thumbs up to Yamaha racing and i have i have a little yamaha so that was pretty cool and yeah it was really interesting to see factory backed and privateer teams just heading back this way (laughs) making the trudge from vegas like obviously really early on sunday because they didn't want to get caught in the traffic coming back to southern california from vegas on a you know all the People that go over there to party all night, they don't leave until the afternoon. So yeah, it was, it was, I knew I'd probably hit some of them if I left early in the morning. So my stop at Prim, I get some coffee. I'm walking in, I see this road bike, a uh, bicycle with the trailer behind it. And I think, man, I'm freezing my ass off. And I, you know, I have my motorcycle gear on. Here's this dude in like sweats and he's just standing out front and he looked a little chilly, like he needed a, a little bit of a Good Morning America in his veins. So I walk up to the guy and I say, hey, I've been riding in the wind and this cold weather all morning. I can't imagine being on a bicycle. So he said, yeah. And he introduced himself. His name was uh, Andre Block. And I said, oh, where are you going to? And he said, oh, I'm headed to California. And I said, oh, yeah, where'd you come from? And I figured he's just riding from Vegas over to L.A. or something. And he said, Knoxville, Tennessee. And I said, you rode this thing all the way from Knoxville? And it wasn't a recumbent bike. It's a, it looked like an old school 10-speed. I mean, it, it was a little bit new. I guess it was like a, a Royal Enfield version of a 10-speed where it looked a little bit 80s, but it had some of the more modern stuff on it. And yeah, he said that he'd been riding from Knoxville to, and he was going to stop in LA and uh, he was riding for lupus and he gave me his card and I struck up a conversation with them and he was a really cool guy. You know, sometimes you go, you see a person standing out front of a gas station and they're like, you know, going to bu- ask you to buy cigarettes for him or beg for money. This guy was just standing there just getting his morning bearings, taking in the the frigid morning air. And I said, man, I, I need a cup of coffee because I, I can't ride. And I told him, you know, it's riding, I, I feel you. I feel you, man. This cold weather is, you know, my nuts are up in my throat. But I can't, you know, imagine being on a bicycle getting blown around in all this shit with all these diesels and stuff and big vehicles heading back toward California. I need a, I need a cup just to uh, warm my hands because at 70 miles an hour, this wind is freezing me, you know. So I said, you want a cup? want a cup of coffee? 
He said, yeah. So I went in and I buy him a cup of coffee and we start talking. And he's on this thing called the Karma Ride. And he started this thing in Knoxville. And I didn't ask him when he left. I'm sure he told me because we, we talked for a little while. But I was just taking it all in. That What a way to travel. I've always wanted to travel across the U.S. I love driving. And I used to just get in my car and drive way back before I owned a bike. And... I think it'd be even more fun to do on a bike, but on a bicycle, you truly are taking in every pebble and crack in the sidewalk. You're taking in every single leaf on the ground. And he's he pretty much did it on a bare bones budget, which just proves that, you know, if you're doing it on a motorcycle, really you need some gas money and then a little bit of food. If you're smart, you can pack all that stuff carry most of it with you but he he just did it on a really bare bones budget and the kindness of of strangers that he'd met spreading the word about lupus and if you go to www.karmaride.org it'll take you to his facebook page and he lays out everything there he's got a gofundme account at gofundme.com forward slash karma ride and he his story is pretty incredible the reason he's doing it is pretty incredible, and I don't want to take anything away from all the great stuff that he's done, but you go check it out and you know see what it's all about and see what he's doing and, and follow his adventures. It was, it was really awesome, and I'm sure he's got like such a great story to tell because he's had he's literally thousands of miles under his belt riding out here, and I think he's going to backtrack and get a car and some equipment and retrace his steps and document, you know, the people and the places and and the stories that he's gathered along the way. So he's literally like this, you know, story collector that's traveling the, the, the country, fighting lupus and getting donations for it and trying to make a difference in this world. And I thought that was pretty, pretty cool. And had, I, had my hands not be freezing cold and had I not stopped to, to get a cup of coffee, you know, just to warm him up, I would not have met that guy, and I thought that was really cool. About an hour out of Prim, I think. Maybe not even that long, actually. Like I said, I stopped on the way back a bunch of times for no no good reason, just because I got freaked out when I was riding out. I didn't care, and when I was riding back, I didn't want to run out of gas in the middle of nowhere, and I couldn't really remember where I had stopped on the way there, so I just stopped at every place that had a gas station. And Baker is not too far from Prim. Maybe not even an hour. I, I don't know. I don't have a clock on my bike. So I got there and I gassed up and I took off. You know, when I got home and I saw that he had only made it to Baker the next day, (laughs) I was like, oh, that's the difference between, you know, I guess that's the pace of, of riding a bicycle, especially loaded with gear. And I had warned him about the wind. I said, you know, watch out, coming this way, it was, you know, Santa Ana's and it was just a headwind the whole way. He probably, you know would have been pedaling backward. There was a couple more hills ahead of him and and he got blown around at like 70 mile an hour or something like that. This truck that was doing 70 just blew him and he fell into the road or something like that. So yeah, it was nuts out there. And I was really just imagining, you know, the adventure that I had because I was on a 250 and not some big like luxury cruiser. Well, tripled that for him being on a bike and he was actually carrying some stuff where I was just you know just had me and my change of clothes in my backpack so yeah pretty amazing story 
took him a couple more days to get to LA, but he made it and it was really cool reading his past stories and reading the people that he's that he had met and just kind of hung out with and I bought him a water bottle cuz some critter had like got into his stuff and eaten his food and he had dropped his water bottle on the way. So I thought, man, anything I could do to help this guy get here would have made me feel a little bit better because I knew literally what an uphill ride he would be having. So yeah, go check him out. Of course, I'll be putting his stuff in the show notes and we'll be giving him a really huge applause, uh, applause, apology at the end of the show. And this is the end of the show. All right, folks. Well, a big uh, apology list today. We covered a lot of junk, and we have a lot of people to say we're sorry to. First and foremost, our favorite podcast, Motorcycles and Misfits. Go check them out at Recycle Santa Cruz. Check out their podcast. They are what we aspire to be. Also, we want to apologize to the Pasadena Glen and the Saw Pet Canyon Debris Basin and anywhere geographically in between, of course. We need to apologize to Tito's Topless, Tompanod, and Tapas Tavern and Titty Bar. Tito, I'll see you on Thursday. Boomer Fireball, I'd like to apologize uh, for whapping you on the head with the 2x4. It was totally comical, you guys. You should have seen it. He had a big knot with like a pound sign on it, just like the old cartoons where it like raised up through his hair. Oh, it was great. Um, Kaufman Mercantile and their EDC toolkit. Sorry for mentioning you and your great quality on the show. Cleveland Moto Podcast. You guys are super informative and probably our second favorite podcast. And we're sorry we drug your name through the dirt by mentioning you on this show. Anti-gravity batteries and their micro start. Such great technology. Such a tragedy to be mentioned on the world's crappiest motorcycle podcast. CITS, Ford, Daimler, VW, BMW, Yamaha, Honda, Car to Car Consortium, and anybody involved with uh, making this world a safer place to drive. Ann Arbor, Michigan, California DMV, Hispanics, for butchering your beautiful language in my stupid skit. Uh, The IMS and all of our previous toasts for bringing uh, bringing it up how crummy it was we'd like to apologize to the following brands that have been at IMS Bimoda Aprilia Motoguzzi Ural Hyosung Buell EBR Zero Bramo Suzuki RSD Victory Indian Polaris the Project 156 bikes the Scout 60 did I mention Suzuki? The Hooligan Class, Triumph Motor Company, Royal Enfield Motor Company, Britain and India, who uh, partnered with Madras Motor Company in 1955. I think I might have said World War One, but you know that that's not right. The Super Prestigio, Pikes Peak, the TTX GP, the Ducati Scrambler and Scrambler 62. The BMW Scrambler, we're sorry. Robert Pandia, sorry bro for mentioning you. Maybe we'll have you on the show sometime. Roland Sands, same. We're sorry for Las Vegas. We're actually not sorry we mentioned Las Vegas. It's a terrible place to visit, but go anyway. We're sorry, Kawasaki. We're sorry, Larry Pegram. 
Josh Hayes, Briar Bauman, Steve Bonzi. Uh, I am sorry for calling the Suzuki Bandit really ugly. I totally forgot about the uh, Yamaha FZ1. <laughs> and most of all, we're sorry for Andre Block. You had a great cause. You're a great guy. And uh, I'm going to send people over, as many people as I can, over to the Karma Ride. Sorry for mentioning you on our show. And sorry, Lupus. All right. Peace. We out. You would blast me with a fireball, Boomer? What type of human are you? I don't know. Rude. Rude. Um, bammed it out of my hand and it... As long as you didn't hit me with it, I'm cool. Charge up. I mean, this is the digital digital era and we... Moving on, sucker. Unpleasure. Check out... Unpleasure? What's... Don't tell people what to do. Don't tell people what to do. It hit you. It did? It didn't. Okay. I love you. Good night.